We have a lot of people that listen online. So if you're listening online right now, this is really awkward because I'm talking to you and I'm talking to them. If you're listening online, you need to show up in person because it's much better in person than it is sitting in your house in your pajamas drinking coffee. Right? Can you guys help convince them, make it loud so they can hear you? It is much better in person than it is online. All right. Well, we're going to start with Philippians chapter 3. We're going to continue joy versus anxiety and talking about how to increase our joy and decrease our anxiety. And it's so huge. Paul talks about it again in these passages. And understand that as we go through the book of Philippians, we're really just hitting this topic. You could spend an entire year on the book of Philippians and not cover it all. So, Philippians chapter 3, 12 through 15. Let's start there. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took a hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. He says that I have put all of this stuff behind me. I have all of these things that that I once was, and I was on fire, and I was excited for my Jewish faith, but I have been since transformed in my spiritual being and in my faith. And now I put all of that behind me. That when we come to God, things change. That I put that life and those ideas and that mentality, I put it behind me, Paul says. And I march on and I push on and I press on towards spiritual maturity. He says that I take, that I take, and that idea of take, it is taking what we either very desperately want or we need. Either we very desperately want it or we need it. But he uses in the Greek, there's these different tenses, right? There's these different, different tenses in the Greek. Now, in the English, we have three, past, present, and future. But in the Greek, they have five or six different tenses. And he uses the, t- the tense called, basically, it's imperfect. Imperfect, presently, presently I'm imperfect. And so he writes it in the presently imperfect tense. And basically what he's saying is, says, I know that presently I am not perfect. The result of that is I take hold of this. I grab this as strongly as I can because I need it, because I know that I'm not perfect. And I know that I've got issues in my life and I have problems. So Paul says that I, that I push those problems back and with all of my might and everything that I am, I take hold of this because I know I'm not perfect and I need more. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm not perfect. Look at your other neighbor and say, you'll get there. You'll get there. It's called heaven. Right? You'll get there. But Paul says, I take hold of it because I need it. I desperately want it because I know right now that I am not perfect. In fact, it's the same word in the same tense that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 40. When he talks about being sued. When somebody comes to sue you, Jesus says... And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
means that when somebody comes to you and they're not perfect, and we know they're not perfect, and they want to take your stuff, it's the same mentality. Now, in my mind, if I'm suing somebody or if you're going to sue some, man, you must really have an issue here. And it's the same mentality. It's saying, I know I've got a real issue. I've got a real problem. I need to take this thing, whatever the cost. So Jesus says, whatever it is they're trying to take from you, if they're willing to hire a lawyer and take you to court and spend all that money, they must really want it. And Paul says, uses the same word in the same tense and says, I got to have this. I need this. I must have it. And that's the direction that we have to go. In fact, it's the same word used in Matthew 8, verse 17, talking about Jesus. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Jesus says, I need this. I want this. I want, I desperately want to take your sins from you and go to the cross for you. I want this and you need it. I'm taking it. I'm just taking it. I'm going to take the brunt of your sins. I'm going to take the brunt. It got real quiet in here. Why is it when you mention the cross, people go, oh. Because it reminds us of the cost that it took to save our souls and bring us and make us right with God. And God says, I desperately want this, and you need it, so I'm taking it. And he took it on the cross. You see, when we take something, there has to be dissatisfaction. You say, Tyson, I thought we were talking about anxiety and joy. We are. We're going to get there. But here's what I know about people that struggle with anxiety. In order to overcome it, you must come to a point where you are extremely dissatisfied with living with these thoughts, these ideas, the worry. You come to a point where you must be extremely dissatisfied with the way your brain is functioning. Anybody who makes drastic change in their life must come to a place where we say, I am dissatisfied with this. This is not okay. This is not okay. The first step to any change is dissatisfaction. Right? If it's not okay that I'm making this income, then I must better myself, go to school, get a trade, do something because I'm dissatisfied with my income, I must better myself economically. You get dissatisfied. And so you make that change. There must be in our spirits what I call a holy discontent. Now, what do I mean by a holy discontent? I mean that inside of our hearts, spiritually, we say, I am not satisfied with where I am spiritually. I must get more. I'm not sad. I can see every time, every time that I talk to a church planter or I'm coaching somebody who wants to start a church from scratch, I can tell you the ones that are going to make it and the ones that aren't. Because the ones that make it have a holy discontent. They're not satisfied with the amount of the Holy Spirit in that city or in that town. They want more people to come to Jesus. I can tell you the people that have a holy discontent plant churches that take off and grow. 
people that are content and just say, well, I just, I just want to love on people. Well, there's lots, of, there's lots of employment and jobs where you can love on people. Those that have a holy discontent grow faster spiritually. Because they say, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. Paul had the holy discontent. He said, I'm not satisfied with where I'm at spiritually. You're talking about a guy who wrote three quarters of the New Testament, who has, through his works, brought billions to Jesus, and he says, I'm not satisfied. There's a holy discontent. Do we have the holy discontent? Or are we satisfied with our five-minute devotions, church, and an occasional prayer on the way to work? Or are we holy discontent so much that we say, no, I'm not satisfied with the little devotion. I want more. I want to pray longer. I want to see Jesus move in my family's life. I want to see my coworkers come to Jesus. I want a revolutional change because until you get to that point, the demonic thoughts of anxiety will continue to plague your mind until you say something has to change. The joy won't increase The anxiety will continue to increase until you get to a point where you say, I am so dissatisfied with my brain and the way it thinks, I have to change this. Now, there are physical ways with medicine. Those are physical ways. I'm talking about spiritual ways. And the reason that I talk about the spiritual ways is because I believe, and if you're a Christian, you have to believe that the spirit is the deepest part of you. And when that begins to change, that will over time begin to affect your thoughts, which affect your actions. So there must be a holy discontent. The problem is that most of us come to a point where we're okay with things. As a Christian, you will only grow as far, you will only go as far as the sin you're comfortable with. As a Christian, you will only go as far as the sin you're comfortable with. And it usually sounds something like, well, that's not as bad as, that's not as much as, that's not, I'm just doing it less than my neighbor. And you will never spiritually grow past that point. We grow as far as the sin we're comfortable with. And so what happens today's title, The Comparison Trap, we begin to compare our sins. We begin to compare our thoughts. We begin to compare our lives to others. Well, I'm, oh, and, and, you, and listen, <laughs> I'm in the boat with you. In fact, I'm probably like, in that boat, I'm probably like George Washington crossing the Potomac. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. Right? And I'm glad you're all in the boat rowing with me, but we got to stop. <laughs> Like, stop it. Because that is where the growth stops. Comparison will stop your spiritual growth. Comparison will increase your anxiety, decrease your joy, and stop your spiritual growth. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses brings All of the people out of Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea. God's providing food. The Bible says that the shoes on their feet did not wear out for 40 years. That in and of itself is a miracle, right? The shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. God's providing miracles. And they get to the land of Canaan. They get to the promised land. They've arrived. They're 20 years in. They've arrived. It's where they're supposed to be. God's promised it to them. 
So what does he do? He says, okay, I need 12 men to go in and spy out the land and figure out how we're going to conquer this. And so what's he do? Well, he gets 12 men, 12 of his top spies, and they go in to Canaan. And they spy, and they check things out, and they come back. And Moses says, all right, where are we at? Let's go. And 10 out of the 12 go, they are so huge. We look like grasshoppers. They have so much money. They have so much equipment. We'll never conquer this town. We'll never conquer this land. We'll never, we'll, we'll never get there. Two other men out of 12, Joshua and Caleb, say, God's promised it to us. We can do it. God said we could do it. We can do it. Now, here's the interesting part. The 10 men that compared themselves to the people living in Canaan and the land that God promised, you never hear from again. They were trapped in the comparison. We'll never take this land. We'll never conquer it. We can't do it. They're too big. They have too many resources. Their grapes are like watermelons. I mean, read it. It's in the Bible. It doesn't say watermelon. It says something else, but I'm paraphrasing. Their grapes are huge. We can't, we can't, there's no way. Joshua and Caleb go, well, God said we were supposed to, so let's go. And what do we know about Joshua and Caleb? The two that didn't compare themselves to others, but only compared their mission to what God had said. Joshua takes over from Moses when he dies. Caleb steps up to second in command under Joshua. The two men that compared what they saw with what God said took over from Moses. The other ten just disappear because they're stuck. They're trapped in the comparison trap. Comparing yourselves with others will only leave you dry, and eventually you'll die. It will leave you dry, and eventually you die. Paul, in our passage, compares himself with two things. He only compares himself with two things. It's not that we aren't supposed to compare. It's that we compare ourselves to the wrong things. He compares himself to two things. Would you like to know what they are? Well, i got about four of you that want to know. He compares himself first. Do you want to know? All right, that's better. All right. He compares, first off, he compares himself to himself. Nobody else. Today, am I living more for God than I was yesterday? Today, am I more on fire for Jesus than I was yesterday? He compares himself to himself. That's it. The second thing that he compares himself to, Jesus. You're like, oh, that's a Debbie Downer. Right? Like, I cannot be that. But you can be that. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the other ends of the earth. He goes, I send my Holy Spirit. What do you think the word Christian means? Christian means little Christ. Little Jesus. You're a little Jesus. Think about that for a minute. You're called to be a little Jesus. You compare yourself to yourself? Am I growing spiritually? Am I maturing spiritually? And am I looking more like Jesus? Is this the direction that God would have me to go? Joshua and Caleb say, this is the direction God's supposed to go. I don't understand it, but let's do it. Well, 10 of them said, nope, we can't. And so what happened? Well, march out in the desert. And for another 20 years, for another 20 years, until, until the disbelieving generation had died. Read it in your Bible. It says, until... The generation that did not trust God had died off. 
And the new generation that trusted God, they're the ones that went into Canaan and took it over. Ouch. Because they were caught comparing themselves. And Paul says, I compare myself to two things, myself and Jesus. If I compare myself to anything else, it's a lie. When you compare yourself to anything else, it's a lie. Why? Because no one else is like you. That's ridiculous. Why do we compare ourselves to other people and create the anxiety in our minds and in our hearts when nobody else is like us? Two things happen when we begin to compare ourselves. Two things. That's it. Two things. The first one is this. We either make ourselves out better than we really are and pride sets in. Or two, we make ourselves to be worse and anxiety sets in. I'm not as good as they are. Oh my gosh, how do I get there? How do I do that? I'm not as good. I mean, I gotta, I gotta think about this, and I gotta, and I stew, and I worry, and the worry then evolves into anxiety. Or I'm not that bad, and we become prideful. I'm not as bad as they are. Both are sin, and then the sin enters in. It begins to destroy our relationship with God. What did I say earlier? You are only going to go as far as the sin you're comfortable with. And if you're com- comfortable with comparing yourself to each other and to one another, that's as far as you're ever going to grow spiritually. And so comparing ourselves is deadly. I love David and the story of David and King Saul and Goliath and just that whole story. Right? Maybe, maybe you've never heard the story. There's a Goliath, and he's mocking God and whatever, and David comes out with a slingshot, slings, boom, out of the slingshot, stone, square between the eyes. Goliath falls over. We know that didn't kill Goliath. That simply knocked him out. And then the Bible says that David went over, took Goliath's sword, and cut his head off, and then held it up. That pretty much killed Goliath. Right? And so, don't worry, we're not, like, back there telling your kids. And then David picked up Goliath's head and blood was dripping everywhere, kids. And he took it around and showed him, right? So, okay, don't worry about, you know, that's, that's, we're not back there sharing all the gore of the Bible with your kids. But that's, that's what happened. Imagine the freedom If you were to begin to tell yourself and begin to believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, David believed that. David believed that completely. See, David comes up to Saul and says, I think I, can, I, think, I think I can take this guy. No, he didn't say that. He said, I know I can take this guy out if you will let me go out there. Now, I'm just a shepherd boy, and I really, I'm not even supposed to be here. My dad just sent food for my brothers, and so that's why I'm bringing it. But I'm really sick of listening to this guy, and I've only been here for a couple hours, and I'm sick of this nine-foot creep out here cussing at our God and cussing at us. I've had about enough of it. And Saul's like, oh. Because back then, they, they didn't like a lot of bloodshed, so what they do is they take their number one warrior, each side would take their number one warrior and let them battle it out. And if your number one warrior won, that was going to say, basically, we can beat them, let's go after them. And if your number one warrior lost, you would typically run run away. So the wars were, were different then. And so Saul's so like, you're a shepherd boy. You stink like sheep. You've got a staff. You're a runt of a kid. I don't think so. So David stays on it. And Saul says, okay, well, if you're going to go out and take Goliath, take my armor. The Bible says David tried it on. 
He's clumsy. He can't use it. And he's like, I, I, I can't use this. But here's what I know. I'm pretty good at throwing rocks. All that time that mom told me not to throw rocks, I kept throwing them, and I've gotten really good at it. So if you just let me throw some rocks, I'm pretty sure I can take this guy out. So I was like, I'm sending a sheep herder to fight a nine-foot warrior who's trained to kill. Whatever, kid. Go. <laughs> right? Like, I've had enough of you. Just stop. Just go. And here's what I can tell you. God took what David knew, and David gave it to God, and he used it. And he takes out the nine-foot warrior. But too many of us are going, all I can do is this. I, this is all, all I know how to do is throw rocks. All I, knew, all I know how to do is fix plumbing. All I know how to do is electrical work. All I know how to do is, and we just say, oh, this is all I've got. But I promise you, if you take what you have, no matter how little you think it is, and put it in God's hands, you can slay your giant. Because David had warriors all around him that were trained to kill, and they were afraid to go out. But he said, I got this. They're all anxious and worried and whatever. If we would stop looking at our gifts and our talents as this is all I've got and say, God, I'm going to put it into your hands, he'll take it and he'll use it to slay giants in your life and slay giants that are going to kill other people's lives. You've got to trust God with it. You can say, look, I'm a good rock thrower. I'm going to go out on that field and I'm going to knock that boy out. That was your amen. And what happens? He goes out and he slays Goliath. And Saul's back here going, oh, snap. Because what happens? Well, they go, he brings David in. David goes out and fights again. And the people on their own, on their own, not led by David, on their own come back from the battlefield singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. And you know what Saul starts doing? He starts comparing himself and David. And from that moment, bitterness sets in in Saul's life. Saul then begins to hunt David down and try to kill him because he's comparing himself to David. And he gets trapped, and he stays in that trap. And it begins to destroy his life. And you know what the result is? The result is that God says, Saul, I'm done with you. David will be king. Because you are so compared or so concerned about comparing yourself to David that you're not even listening to me anymore. You're just trying to one-up the guy that's next. Comparison traps you. I know I've said it a thousand times. I'll say it a thousand times again. Comparison traps you. It prevents you from going after what you really need. In Psalm 42, 1, and, 1 through 2, it says, As the deer pants longingly for the water brooks. So my soul pants longingly for you, O God. My soul, my life, my inner self, thirst for God, for the living God. When will I come and see the face of God? David writes this song and he says, as the deer pants for the water. Now I got some hunters in here and you all know that the deer stay around the water. They got to go to the water eventually. And David, as a hunter and as an outdoorsman, knows that. You know, when a deer goes after water, a deer doesn't walk up and go, oh, he's got a bigger rack than I do. All right, I'll go to the next stream. His rack's bigger too. 
Deers don't care about that. They know they need water and they're going to go get it. They don't care about that. They long for the water. Deers need water. We need God. I can't go to that church because that person there, they're so spiritual. I can never, I'll go over to this church. Believe me, it happens. I know. I've had conversations. Like, are you just kidding me right now? No. No. If we're pushing forward towards the things of God, we do not stop and compare. We say, what do I got? How do I add it to the body of Christ? How do I bring my gifts and my talents? That's why I'm so excited about some of these some of these community groups and people using their gifts and their talents, whether it's the mechanics group or it's the home repair group or whatever it is, that we're using our talents and then taking that talent, helping one another, and then sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and growing spiritually with that talent as well. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. And so as I said before, a divine dissatisfaction is necessary for spiritual growth. We have to say, I'm not satisfied. I don't care that that buck's rack is bigger than my rack. I need a water and I'm going to drink. It's people who get dissatisfied and say, I don't care. I'm going to push on. And this is what Paul's saying. It says, I don't care about my anxiety. I'm going to push on. I'm going to keep going. Paul says there's joy in that. Is it hard? Oh, it's extremely hard. Very tough. But when you get to the point that you realize you're your own worst enemy and nobody else is stopping you, and the only reason you're stopping is because you're comparing your rock to the guy's rifle next to you, David was surrounded with guys that had all kinds of weapons. He's like, well, I can throw rocks, and I'll give it to God. When you realize that your rock can do more than the guy's rifle next to you, you'll step out in faith. Because it's not about your ability to throw a rock. It's about God's ability to increase the velocity so that it hits right where it can knock the guy out. Where you can knock out whatever is holding you back. And Paul says, this one thing I do, and I love it, because our very first sermon about joy and anxiety, I talked about one of the ways you conquer anxiety is having a single mind, single focus. Paul says, this one thing I do. One thing I do. Look at Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David says, listen, I, I would... David says, I would rather dwell in God's house than dwell in any else, any other place on this planet. I would rather be around the people that are journeying on the same path, one heart, one mind, one purpose. And how many people can we bring in to get on the same path with one heart and one mind and one purpose? The problem is that too many Christians are involved in too many things to be effective for the kingdom. Warren Wiersbe in his book, Be Joyful. The problem too many Christians are involved in too many things to be effective for the kingdom. Oh, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to go do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. And we're so busy with so many things going on that we just figure out how to squeeze church in. We just try to figure out how to fit God's kingdom in. in. Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is a kingdom. I'm in charge. I'm in control. Jesus said, this is... My church, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's his church. And any time that we say it's my church, that is theology gone bad and borders on heresy. Because it's not your church. It's not my church. It's God's church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of, 
Listen, the gates of hell will prevail if it's my church. The gates of hell will prevail if it's your church. They will. It's great marketing, deplorable theology. And so here's what I'm saying. We have to get focused that this is Jesus' thing. He started it. He will grow it through the power of the Holy Spirit with your talents, with your gifts, and with your abilities. We can't compare ourselves to others. We march forward with what we have. Paul says in verse 14, I press. It's hunting. This is a hunting term. It's like when you shot your deer or your turkey or whatever, your bear, your elk, and it takes off, and you're following the trail of blood, this is, a, this is the Greek word for that. So if you were Greek, you would use this word to say, I'm pressing through the woods, I'm pressing over the stream, I'm pressing to find this thing so that I can get it. And so Paul says, I am hunting down Jesus. I'm hunting down the Holy Spirit, and I'm finding his work in my life, and I'm, comparing, I'm not comparing this blood trail to that blood trail, I'm not comparing these footprints to that put, footprint, I'm comparing this footprint and this blood trail to what I know, and I'm pushing on. And Paul uses a hunting term to say that I press on. But there's two extremes. As I get ready to wrap this up, there are two extremes that happen in our lives with anxiety. Spiritually. One says, I must do it all. I've got to work to build it. I've got to work to make it happen. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. The other extreme says, God must do it all. God's got to do this. I can't do this. I've, God's got to, or I've got to. I want to just theologically go deep just for the next few minutes. There's a doctrine in theology. Theology is simply the study of God. There's a doctrine in theology called the doctrine of concurrence. Now, when I whipped this out in the van on the way to Anderson last night, my family was like, huh? Lynn's like, you're going to have to explain that. You just can't say doctrine of concurrence and walk out. I'm like, fair enough. (laughs) Right? So the doctrine of concurrence. Let me explain two things, and you'll see how they work together in the doctrine of concurrence. We say God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God. Perhaps you've heard it before. If you've been in church any length of time, you've heard the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. The word sovereign means... All-powerful, all-powerful, supreme power, right? Here's what we mistake when we hear the sovereignty of God. We mistake this. We say because he's all-powerful, he uses it all the time, and he's constantly just moving us like pawns on a chessboard. It's not true. Just because you have all power doesn't mean you use it, right? When, when, let's say you're working in the nursery, God bless your heart, right? I mean that with all my heart. God bless you. You have sovereignty in that room, or at least, you know, we like to think we do in the nursery, right? You are all powerful in that room. But do you use all of the power that's available to you? Nope. Why? Because you want the children, the kids, the babies to explore, play, and do their own thing. Just because I have all power doesn't mean I'm going to yield it all the time. The second thing that we have to understand with the doctrine of concurrence is humanity's free will. Just like the babies 
in the nursery have free will. They can pick up this toy or use that toy, and you let them do, even though you're all powerful in that room, you let them express themselves in their free will. So here's what the doctrine of concurrence says. The doctrine of concurrence says this. There are two separate free wills working, but when they come together, they concur and move forward. So that when my free will aligns with God's free will, now keep in mind, your free will and my free will, it's finite. It's limits, because we can only see so many options. God's free will is infinite, and he can see infinite options. And so when you choose to make a move, he goes, well, I could make this move or that move or that move. And, and may, maybe you're looking at five options, and you pick option number three. God's seeing one billion options, and he goes, okay, he picked option number three. Well, then on option number three, I've got 500,000 things I could do. And I'm just putting a number to the infinite. Do you understand that? And so when your free will interacts with God's free will, there is concurrence. And when you operate in concurrence, you operate in the Holy Spirit's current. Oh, snap. Does that make sense? So that when I'm operating in concurrence and in the current of the Holy Spirit, the anxiety has to go because I know I'm in step with God. And I know that he's got my best interest in mind. Some of the greatest examples of concurrence in Scripture, Job. Satan goes to God and says, have you considered Job? I bet if you take away all of his wealth, take away his family and all this stuff, I bet he'll curse you. And God goes, no, you won't. Satan, take whatever you want. Don't touch his life. You cannot kill him, but take anything else you want. So what happens? We have the free will of God allowing Satan to go after Job. We have Satan's free will to go after Job. Now we have Job's free will acting. Well, the Bible says that Job had tons and tons of camels. And Satan, the Chaldeans come in. The Chaldeans are raiders. They come in and they raid Job. And they take all of his camels. Satan wasn't concerned about the camels. Satan's concerned about getting Job to curse, curse God. And so Satan works with the free will of the Chaldeans. And so you have the Chaldeans' free will because they're raiders. They're going to raid. Satan uses that. God uses Job. And you see four separate free wills interact. And Job never once curses God by his own choosing. He says, I will not curse God. I will praise God. It's concurrence. It's all working together. There's multiple moving parts. Another example of concurrence, the doctrine of concurrence. Joseph, in the Bible, his brothers sold him into slavery. God says, okay, well, I can use that because here are the, all the options. i got to get Joseph to be second in charge of Egypt. So Joseph, his brothers make a move, then God makes a move, and then Joseph moves and God moves until eventually Joseph's at the top and God spares the Jewish people and brings them into Egypt. To save them. Here's what I can tell you. Concurring with God decreases your anxiety because you know that you're walking in concurrence with the will of the Father. Let me give you one final example that happened last night at Hobby Lobby. Yeah, you can laugh because this is silliness. And I'm going to close with this. 
We're checking out. There's a long line. There's always a long line. And they brought some cashiers up to take care of it. Well, Lynn says, I'm going to take Isaiah outside because that's... At what point do you stop taking your kid to the bathroom because he's acting up? I mean, he's going into seventh grade, and I said, I'm going to have to take your tail to the bathroom if you keep it up. We were, we were in the bathroom, right? So we had ourselves a pretty stern talking to. And anyway, Lynn says, well, I'm going to take him on out to the van. I said, take him out. He gets no Xbox for the next two days. All right. So then... Jeremiah and I are standing in line. I'm like, okay, the line starts to move. I'm like, all right. Well, the lady in front of us, she gets up there, and she pulls everything out of her cart. I'm like, okay, she's got a lot, but I can wait. And then she goes to the inn and grabs another cart full of sacks, and she goes, I'm returning all of this, and I'm buying this. And I went, oh, no. See, y'all laugh because you've been there, Right? Like, this is not cool. So I'm like, and well, they had opened up two other lanes. And I'm like, let's get over there. I said, Jay, grab your cart. Let's go. I start taking off. And I'm like, you know how you dart because you want to beat everybody else? Right? You're like racing. So I'm coming this way because I have compared all the lanes, all four of them. That one's moving the fastest. So I'm going to move fast to get in the fast lane because there's only one person left. I'm moving this way fast. Here come two ladies. I'm going to make it worse. They had to be in their 90s. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, no joke, this went through my head. Do I beat these two old ladies in their 90s pushing their cart? Because if I have to do that, I'm going to have to pretty much actually physically hit them. And set a bad example for my son. <laughs> but by golly, my wife has been trapped in the car with my other son who hasn't stopped talking and being loud since we got there. My desire to change lanes because I'm being impatient and God's free will to say, no, you need to work on your patience. I'm going to allow these ladies' free will to intervene in your free will, and I'm going to use it to grow your patience. So what do I do? Well, then I look down, I see this little bracelet that has a cross on it, and I'm like, oh, gosh. Right? And then I'm like, okay, I can't set a bad example for my son. I am a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor. (laughs) Literally went through my head. I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor. And then she's like, I'm like, Concurrence, my free will, their free will, God intervening, intervening in his will. Because as I was checking out and it was my turn, God said, at some point you're going to learn patience. And thank you for not running over the two 95-year-old women. Let's stand up. As we close out this morning, let's not compare ourselves to one another. And in that story, that closing story, I knew that that was God working because, like I said, as I checked out, I sensed God saying, you are going to learn to be patient. And so 
that's how I knew that it was God working in all of something just as simple as a daily checkout. Where's God working in your life? Because I was getting anxious. I got to get out of here. I got to hurry up. I got I got things to do. And God's like, no, patience, patience. As we close out in song this morning, maybe you were here and you're struggling with anxiety and you look at your rock and you look at all the other people who seem to be trained for war and you go, I can't do this. I've all I've got is a rock. I'm here to tell you, your rock may be the, exactly what God wants to use to create faith and belief in these other people. But if you keep comparing, you'll never step out on the battlefield and defeat your giant. So we want to pray with you. I'm going to ask Aaron and Lori Riffey to come down on this side. And I'm going to ask Lynn and Amy to come over here. And if you're here this morning and that's you and that's, a, that's your struggle, then let us pray with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't even know the Holy Spirit. You, you've never given your life to Jesus and allowed the Holy Spirit to come alive in you. I want to invite you to come forward so we can pray with you to accept Jesus into your life. To ask him to, God, forgive me of my sins, cleanse me, make me whole. My life is yours and not mine. If that's you, I want you to come forward as we close out with song.